following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And that's what we want to get the answer to. And the, the sad truth is we really don't get the real answer until God talks. And God doesn't show up until next week. So we have to wait a whole other week. But we're, we can learn some things from Elihu. All right, so let's, uh, let's dive in real quick and kind of survey first Job's last words, Job's final words in the book. Uh, and he starts off by looking back to the good old days, right? He remembers before all this calamity and disaster struck him what life was like. And we won't read the whole chapter, but let me just read some of it to get a picture for what Job remembers. In chapter, chapter 29, verse 2, Job says, I long for the years gone by when God took care of me, when he lit up the way before me and I walked safely through the darkness. When I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. The Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. My steps were awash in cream and the rocks gushed olive oil for me. What great, okay, that's great poetic imagery. Life was ice cream. And bacon. <laughs> that would be my translation. Okay, that, that means it's good. Right? Those were the days when I went to the city gate and I took my place among the honored leaders. Okay, there's respect here. There's honor. The young stepped aside when they saw me and even the aged rose in respect at my coming. The princes stood in silence and put their hands over their mouths. Oh, look, it's Job, Right? Uh, you get a sense of the honor, the respect that Job has. Right? Um, the highest officials of the city stood quietly, holding their tongues in respect. All who heard me praised me. All who saw me spoke well of me. For I assisted the poor in their need and the orphans who required help. I helped those without hope, and they blessed me. And I caused the widows' hearts to sing for joy. Everything I did was honest. Righteousness covered me like a robe, and I wore justice like a turban. Okay, now, uh, it might sound a lot like Job is boasting here, but he's not boasting. He's remembering. And he's remembering uh, how things were, right? He was a man with status, with honor, with respect, right? In Thai culture, we would say Job had face. A lot of face, right? He... He had uh, high standing, the highest standing in society. He had the honor and respect even of leaders, of the elderly, of wealthy people. Everybody respected him. And, and because of that respect, he had influence and he helped people. And what was the basis of this respect? Well, partly it was based on his prosperity. Here's a guy who was just really wealthy, right? He's driving a BMW. He's got a really nice house. He is the model of prosperity. Uh, And clearly, somebody who's that blessed is what? Good. Like, really good. Not just kind of good, not partly good. Here's a guy who's this successful. He must be really good because he is so supremely blessed. That's how the merit system works. He has, we could say, really good karma. Right? And so... He's got face. He's got influence. He's got status. He has power. But some of it is not just only because of his wealth. Uh, He is also uh, 
praised because of his character. And we see here's a guy who's taking care of the poor. He's taking care of the widow and the orphan. He's looking after the needy. He's meeting people's needs. Right? He's, he's, he's uh, making a difference in the world with those who struggle. Right? So he's not using his wealth selfishly, but he's blessing all those around him with his wealth. Right? And it's interesting in Thai, in Thai culture, Thai society, this is the picture of good karma. Right? This is a guy who has face. Right? He has wealth, he has prosperity, he has success. Uh, he's a good guy, he's doing good things, and that's why he is blessed. Right? And so he has honor and status and position and influence at the highest level. Right? Uh, he says in verse 29, uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 21, Everyone listened to my advice. They were silent as they waited for me to speak. And after I spoke, they had nothing to add, for my counsel satisfied them. Right? So here's a guy who's got amazing influence, amazing power, amazing respect. Right? Life is good. Right? But then he switches gears in chapter 30, and he talks about how things have changed. Right? As a result of his affliction, as, as a result of the tragedy that's come into his life. Right? He's no longer wealthy. He's no longer healthy. Uh, he has lost everything. And now look at how society views him. Chapter 30, verse 1. But now, I am mocked by people younger than I. Like before, you, you then, even the elder, respected him. Now young people mock him. By young men whose fathers are not worthy to run with my sheepdogs. Okay. So that's kind of an insult, right? So he's, he's being mocked now, not only by young people, but by young people from worthless families. Like, family's so worthless, they not even be equated with his sheepdogs, right? Um, a lot of good they are to me, those worn-out wretches. They are gaunt from poverty and hunger. Okay, notice what he's saying here. He's making state, statements about people's social status, right? He's, he's talking about people who are on the lowest rung of social order. Why are they on the lowest rung of social order? Because they are poor, They are dirt poor. They claw the ground in desolate wastelands. They pluck wild greens from among the bushes and eat from the roots of broom trees. These are people who are eking out a living by by scrounging for weeds in the ditches. These are super poor people. And as super poor people, where are they in the the social, social ladder? The bottom. Like the bottom of the bottom, right? They are driven from human society, right? They're social outcasts. People shout at them as if they were thieves. So now they live in frightening ravines, in caves and among rocks. They sound like animals howling among the bushes, huddled together beneath the nettles. They are nameless fools, outcasts from society. Okay, so, so Job describes the, the bottom rung of society. And why are they the bottom rung? Because they are dirt poor. Dirt poor. But now what... <laughs> But it gets even worse than that, okay? And he says, and now, these are the people who mock me. They taunt me. They despise me and won't come near me except to spit in my face. To put it again in Thai context, he has lost face. Not only has he lost face, he has lost all face. He has nothing left of dignity or respect or honor. He is so despicable that the poorest poorest rung of society, the poorest, most <clears throat> bottom rung, actually looked down on him. 
right? He's even below them. <clears throat> That's how bad it is, right? And so he, he's lost face to the young and old. He has lost, four, lost face even to the poorest. Nobody listens to him. Everybody mocks him. What has changed for Job? Well, only his circumstances, right? The only thing that's changed is that he is no longer wealthy. He is no longer prosperous. And so he's gone from the top of the social ladder to where? The bottom of the bottom, right? And so, of course, we can feel <clears throat> for Job some of, some of the, des- the despair he's in, right? And for us who come from more maybe the democratic West where we don't maybe have these w- well-defined social ladders, maybe it's hard for us to uh, identify with how bad luck causes you to be a social outcast. Right? Uh, most of us in the West, we don't look at the poor and think, well, you must be really bad, and I can therefore despise you. But in much of the world, especially in Asia, that's exactly true. Right? I have a right to despise you. I have actually a right, actually, maybe even a moral responsibility to look down on you if you're a poor, if you're an orphan, if you're a widow, if you were born in the wrong class of people. Why? Well, because according to the merit principle, you must be bad. You have bad karma. You're a bad person. Right? And so you deserve, you get what you deserve. Right? And therefore, I, I shouldn't respect you. I shouldn't honor you. I shouldn't listen to you. Because you're no good. You're worthless. You are an outcast of society. Right? And so Job cries out in verse 20, I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You have become cruel toward me. You use your power to persecute me. Um, unfortunately, the, the more Job tries to understand his situation and try to explain his experience in view of God's character, um, the, the, the more he downgrades God's character. Right? And that's a danger. Right? When we decide who God is based on our life experience, we, 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 we run the risk of, of greatly misunderstanding who God is. And that's where Job is. He's greatly misunderstanding who God is uh, because he's defining and, and understanding God based on his experience, uh, life experience, not on God's revelation. Right? And so uh, then in chapter 31, he, he, his last real word, his last cry is uh, basically a, a cry for justice, right? He feels God's treated him unfairly. And so uh, Job comes up with a rather clever idea. Job is pretty smart. And basically he, what he does is he says this. He says, first of all, that God is just. And if God is just, then he has to curse uh, the wicked and he has to bless the good. So he says in verse 2 of chapter 31, for what? Uh, what has God above chosen for us? Uh, what is our, our inheritance from Almighty? Isn't it calamity for the wicked and misfortune for those who do evil? Right? Doesn't God have to do this? God has to send calamity on evil people. Um, now, of course, Job's, this is kind of funny because Job's whole argument is that God has sent calamity and he's not guilty. But he goes back to this um, logic. And he says, okay, God, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to give you one more chance. Basically what he's telling God. I'm going to give you one more chance, God, to get this right. And he comes up with this oath statement. And in this oath, he says, look, God, if I have done this, 
then you must do this. If I have done evil in any way, then you must judge me. Right? And he goes through this chapter. We won't read the whole thing. But he has these, these statements of, if I have done anything wrong, then God, you have, to, you have to curse me. So the first one he says in verse 5, he says, Have I lied to anyone or deceived anyone? Let God weigh me on the scales of justice, for he knows my integrity. If I have strayed from his pathway, or if my heart has lusted for what my eyes have seen, or if I'm guilty of any other sin, then let someone else eat the crops I have planted. Let all that I have planted be uprooted. Right? And he goes through this long list. We won't, we won't look at all, but he goes through this long list of, you know, if I've lusted after another woman, if I've slept with another woman, if I've mistreated my servants, if I've held back something from the poor, then God, you judge me. Right? Now, this is a challenge to God, and this is how it works. Job is essentially saying, look, I put it out there. Okay, God zap me. Now, if God zaps him, then Job gets his one wish and he dies. Right? And it's kind of end of story, right? But if God doesn't do anything, then Job can say, see, look, I am not guilty because God did not punish me more. Right? Um, <clears throat> kind of interesting logic. Um, but, but that's where Job's at. He says, prove me, God. Let, let me at least prove to my, 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 my friends, my people, that I, I'm not guilty. So if you're going to strike me dead, strike me dead right now. Okay, one, two, three. Oh, see, you didn't strike me dead. I must not be guilty. You had your chance, God, right? So that's, that's his logic here. Well, that's Job's last word, and he kind of leaves it there with God to punish him or not. And if God punishes him, it will prove finally his guilt. If God doesn't punish him, then then Job can claim, see, I've been wrongly punished because I'm not guilty of anything. And in doing this, Job is is, uh, trying to rescue his own reputation, but he's doing it at the cost of God's reputation. He's saying, look, if, if I'm right, then God's messed up and God is wrong. God's actually the one who's guilty. Well, this just, uh, remember Elihu's pacing in the background, right? Well, now this just sets him off. He becomes a bomb who just explodes because he knows this can't be true, right? You can't, no matter what circumstances are going on in your life, the answer cannot be that God is guilty of something. Right? That, gets, that, that creates a whole other set of problems, actually, that, that Job hasn't really thought through. Right? If God is capable of evil or wrong or injustice, Job's problems have just been started. Right? Um, and, and his reputation is the least of his worries if God is evil. Right? If God is unjust. If God can't be counted on to execute his plan in a way that's right. right? We're all in trouble. right? If God is fickle, if God is evil, if God is unjust. And so Elijah, Elihu comes on, <coughs> on stage and he is fired up. And uh, we find out uh, that he is a young and he really represents kind of youthful idealism. The good thing about Elihu, though, is that he has much better th- theology um, he probably just got out of seminary, and he's read all the books. He's got all the answers. He knows it. He knows. He knows. He knows what he is talking about, and he's angry because uh, he doesn't like 
that, that Job is trying to rescue his own reputation at the cost of God's holiness, right? And so, um, so, so Elihu has a much better view of God. He sees God as one who is absolutely just and righteous, uh, who cannot do wrong, right? Who cannot make mistakes. And in this, uh, Elihu is much better than Job's friends, right? Uh, he, he is not like Job's friends who thought God didn't even know what he wanted, and he was only after people's help. Uh, Elihu has a much higher view of God. He sees God as a God of absolute justice and righteousness. So in chapter 34, verse 10, Elihu says, Listen to me, you who have understanding. Everyone knows that God doesn't sin. The Almighty can do no wrong. He repays people according to their deeds. He treats people as they deserve. Truly, God will not do wrong. The Almighty will not twist justice. Right? So he's, he's determined and fierce on this point that God cannot twist justice. God cannot sin. God cannot do wrong. He also uh, affirms that God is, is not a God who needs us. And that was really the root of, of bad thinking among Job's friends. He, they had this idea that, well, God just needs our help. And so he's bribing us to give him what he wants because God needs us. But uh, Elihu also has a, a much higher view of God, that God doesn't need anybody. God is not dependent on his creation. Right? He didn't make us because he was lonely. He didn't create the world because he wanted a donut <laughs> and wanted us to you know, harvest wheat and make him a donut and offer it to him. Right? God doesn't need us. So in, in Job 35, 6, uh, Elihu says, Look, if you sin, how does, God, how does that affect God? Even if you sin again and again, what effect will it have on him? It doesn't affect God. If you are good, is this some great gift to him? What could you possibly give him? No, your sins affect only people like yourself, and your good deeds also affect only humans. And that's a, that's a very true statement, right? Our sin does not wreck God's day, right? Our sin does not unravel God, right? Uh, it, do, it also doesn't surprise God. And likewise, neither does our, our good deeds. Right? Now, of course, God delights in our worship. He delights in our praise. He is grieved when we sin. But he's not wrecked by it. Right? God does not need us. And, and there's nothing that we do that affects or influences God's thinking or his plan or his actions. Right? Uh, in other places, he, he affirms that, that God is... Is, is self-sufficient, right? God doesn't need anything outside of himself. And he didn't create the world to fill some need that he had. Um, so, so Elihu has some good things to say. Right? He upholds the righteousness and justice of God, that God cannot sin. But Elihu is still stuck in the same trap of Job and all of his friends. And that is, the, that is this trap of, of the merit system explaining God's justice in the world, right? Uh, the same dilemma that, that if God cannot do wrong, and if God never twists justice, and if justice means getting what you deserve, then if Job suffers, he must deserve it. He must be guilty, right? Um, 
Now, uh, we won't go into all the reasons. Elihu's reasons for Job's guilt is a, is a little more complicated. We don't have time to unpack it all. Um, but it's still the same conclusion, right? Uh, Elihu comes to the same ultimate flaw in his thinking that life is explained in the phrase, you get what you deserve. You get that. that just explains how life works. The merit system, karma, right? Life is about getting what you deserve. Uh, Job, you failed the test. Uh, you're angry at God. You've sinned. And so you get what you deserve. Your suffering is punishment, right? And as I said, uh, he actually takes it one step further. And he says that everything in life is a matter of getting what you deserve. This is what he says in Job 36, verse 5. Listen to this. And he's talking here about... Uh, Grand pictures of God's glory, his power, right? And in verse 5, he says, God is mighty, but he does not despise anyone. He is mighty both in power and understanding. He does not let the wicked live, but he gives justice to the afflicted. He never takes his eye off the innocent, but he sets them on thrones with kings and exalts them forever. Okay, so there's the wicked and the innocent. God punishes the wicked. But he blesses, he watches over, he protects the innocent. Right? Therefore, everything that happens is, is judgment. Okay? So think about this statement. Everything that happens in life is judgment. Either God judging your behavior as good and rewarding you, or judging your behavior as bad and punishing you. He says this explains every event of life. Right. Well, how does he say that? Well, he says in verse uh, 29 of chapter 36, Who can understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunder that rolls forth from heaven? See how he spreads the lightning around him and how it lights up the depths of the sea. By these mighty acts, God nourishes people and, and giving them food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning bolts and hurls each at its target. The thunder announces his presence, the storm announces his indignant anger. Okay, what is he saying there? He's saying that in, in all, the, all the acts of nature, the clouds, the thunder, the rain, tornadoes, earthquakes, all the events of nature, that God uses all of these things for good and for judgment, right? To provide them food, but also to show his indignant anger, right? This is, now, this is Elihu's thinking. This is Elihu's thinking, okay? This is not really speaking uh, for God. Uh, then he goes on in chapter 37, and he says this. Okay, he says this. The clouds churn at his direction. They do whatever he commands throughout the earth. He makes these things happen either to punish people or to show his unfailing love. Okay, in other words, everything that happens in life is either God's punishment or his unfailing love. Right? Does that explain how the world works? Right? Do we want the world to work this way? Right? Do we want every event, every drop of rain to be either God's blessing or God's punishment? Right? And, and just to explain kind of how, how complicated this is, like how this really can't explain life. First of all, I can't explain life because this is not Job's situation. We know that Job is not being punished for sin. Right? So we know from the very beginning this can't be true. But let's think about this practically. Right? Uh, pick your favorite sports team, if it's soccer, American football, baseball, basketball, I don't care. But um, interestingly, a lot of times athletes 
uh, before they compete, they want to get God's favor, right? And so what will they do? Well, they'll pray. Um, they'll try to be good, right? Especially if it's like a championship game. If it's like, like every like world championship, you want to make sure that you really get God on your side. So how does this work, right? You've got two teams. What happens if there's really strong Christians on both teams, right? What if there's really good people on both teams and they're both praying, God, give us victory? Who does God, who does God help? Well, obviously, whoever's got the best quarterback <laughs> or the best goalie. I don't know. How does he pick, right? Does he pick, well, you know, you have eight really good people on your team, but you only have seven good people on your team. Sorry, I'm going, I'm going with the majority, right? Is that how it works, right? Is that, is that how God executes justice, right? Um, or take, take the rain, right? Uh, this really super <clears throat> good Christian family loves God. They've sacrificed a lot. They support missionaries. They support missionaries in Thailand, right? A lot. These are good people. And they're going to have a family reunion because it's Mother's Day. And they're going to go out and they're going to have a picnic and they're going to celebrate mom. And so they pray, God, give us a really beautiful day because we want to celebrate our mom with sunshine and a beautiful day. We're right next door. There's a Christian family who are farmers, right? And they just planted their wheat. And they, uh, they need rain so their wheat will grow. So they pray, God, we pray for rain so that our wheat will grow. Well, who's God going to answer? Is he going to send rain or not? Well, obviously he's going for mom, right? It's Mother's Day, right? How does this work? Right? Can the merit system explain God's justice? And that's the problem, see? Uh, is, is it really a matter of everything in life being a matter of getting what we deserve? Or is it just a matter of dealing with what we get? <clears throat> right? Is it just a matter of dealing with what we get? That, yes, life dishes out all kinds of things. Life dishes out good things. Life dishes out bad things. At some level, yeah, God's hand is somehow in it, somehow. But is everything explained, really, by getting what we deserve? Um, I believe that the events of life are much more complicated than that. And more importantly, God's judgment or, or God's justice cannot be explained by the merit system. And see, here's really where the problem, the, 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 the root problem, right? Uh, God's justice cannot be defined on the basis of the events of our life, right? You think God's justice cannot be explained by how life works out for us. His justice is much bigger than that and much more complicated. Um, Job and all of his friends have boiled justice down to and really squeezed God's justice into the execution of, of merit. Right? That if God is just, then everybody just gets what they deserve. But God's justice is much more complicated and significant and deeper than that. Right? Uh, God is, ju- is just, right? But if, if God is just by this system, then every bolt of lightning and every drop of rain, every sunny day or earthquake or abundant harvest is somehow God's act of judgment. But does that really explain how life works? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? And, and clearly the whole book is trying to unravel that thinking. This is a faulty view 
of what God's justice is. Right? And here's uh, uh, some basic problems with this thinking. Let me just highlight a couple. Right? First off, uh, is that this kind of thinking creates the most incredible injustice in society in developing a caste system. Right? Okay, if karma works, right? if the merit system works, then, uh, and, and if this is how God executes justice, it creates in the world a society that is incredibly unjust in that it forces people into a caste system, right? a caste system, into a social hierarchy. Right? You see this most uh, vividly pictured in India where people are set in very strict caste systems. And why do they belong where they belong, right? Well, it works like this. If you are, if you are born poor, you have bad karma, you deserve it, right? And all of society can look down on you, right? What's even worse, if you're just born into the low caste, like maybe you're not even poor, but you're born into the lowest caste, it's proof that you have bad karma, that you deserve it, and that all of society can look down on you and treat you horribly, right? Um, uh, the flip side, if you're wealthy, if you're born into a higher caste, you are what? Well, you are good, and you deserve what you get, right? And so all of life gets broken down into these, these castes, this hierarchy, right? And it is incredibly unjust, right? Uh, nowhere in Scripture does it teach that we are to view people based on their life circumstances. Right? That they automatically fit into some category based on whether they're poor or rich, uh, whether they're young or old, whether they're the P or the non. Sorry. Right? There's nowhere in Scripture that says that becomes the basis of a person's worth uh, as a person or in society. Right? In fact, the Bible teaches quite the opposite. It teaches that we are to value every person as somebody created in God's image, rich or poor. Right? We, are not, we are not in Scripture, in the rest of Scripture, we are never told that we are to respect the respectable, the wealthy, and the powerful, but we can look down on the poor. Okay, nowhere does Scripture affirm that. But the, the merit system creates a world where that is, that is, that is right. Right? So how, if this is justice, then how could it create something that's so unjust? Well, it can't, right? It can't. Um, scripture says this in, in James. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. For if a man comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and he comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right? Um, now, of course, uh, if we're in the West, if we're from the democratic cultures, we don't have caste system. Right? We're better than all that, right? We don't have caste system. We don't. We don't think of people better based on their wealth, right? Or do we? Like if we're honest, maybe we don't have people squeezed into formal caste systems like they do in India. But if you're honest, when you come across a really poor person 
who hasn't washed their clothes in months and they're living on the street. Do you think about them the same person as, uh, the same way as you think of a wealthy person? Or do you think, wow, what's wrong with them? Right? We do have prejudices, right? We do look down on people. And as James points out, even in the church, it is easy to put people in boxes based on their life circumstances, right? And it's unjust. It is unloving. In fact, he says, he says later, he says, he says you're, not, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself when you do this, James says, right? So, so um, we cannot judge, and, and I don't think God judges people based on their life circumstances. Uh, we cannot say that because a person's poor, they are evil, right? Second thing, though, uh, that's wrong with this is this view, the merit system, the karma system, um, does not take into account the patience of God, right? Uh, God is just, but God is also patient, Right? And there's nowhere that God says he judges everything instantly. Like, I'm so thankful for this, right? Uh, I'm so thankful that when I say something stupid, my teeth don't fall out, right? God's like, see, I told you, don't do that, right? I'm so glad life does not work that way. Uh, God is slow to anger and he is patient. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is incredibly patient. And the truth is that God will bring judgment. God will one day judge every human being. But praise God, he waits till the end of the race to to determine uh, our guilt or our innocence. He doesn't smack us along the way, each step of the way. Right? Right? Imagine the coach who's out there with his athlete. <coughs> Sorry. And every time the runner starts running a little slow, he kicks him, you know. Well, that might speed him up, right? Uh, but that's not how it works. <coughs> right? We, we wait till the end to see how you finish. And that's where, that's where the, the reward or the punishment is meted out, right? Judgment comes at the end. It's final, right? And so <coughs> along the way, uh, God, uh, God is patient, right? But there is judgment. Matthew 12, he says, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. <coughs> I tell you, on the day of <coughs> judgment, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Yes, we will be judged. But the judgment will be in, in eternity, right? Not now. Right? God is withholding judgment. And then that brings really the third important principle, and that is God's common grace. In the meantime, in God's patience, he is un- incredibly kind to the righteous and the wicked. Right? We call that common grace. Right? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you can be like your Father who is in heaven. And what is he like? Well, he is a God who makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God sends everything, good and bad, to everybody. That's his common grace. The world meets out 
rain and, and you know, God, God pours abundant blessing on Thailand. And, and Thailand is a country that largely ignores God and, and, and rejects him. But God hasn't turned Thailand into a desert. It's amazingly abundant. Right? That's his common grace and goodness, right? Uh, and not only that, but out of his great love, Jesus came to us, not because we were good or because we were his friends or because we deserved it, but actually because and when we were his enemies, right? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a really good person someone would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I praise God that life and God's justice is not getting what we deserve. Right? The, the, the message of the gospel, the ultimate message of scripture is that we do not get what we deserve. And we get very much a gift that we did not deserve. Right? Right? Um, so, um, so, so the book of, of Job is ultimately trying to show that uh, God's justice in the world is not explained by the merit system. God is just. And God will one day work out his justice perfectly. But we're not going to see that justice carried out day by day by if God sends rain on our baseball game or sunshine on our picnic or if my team wins because I prayed, right? Uh, And we can't look at every evil event as somehow God's judgment, I remember when uh, on 9/11, <clears throat> when the, uh, the twin towers fell, when the terrorists flew airplanes into the twin towers, people saying, "See, God's judging America." Now, I'll be very honest: God should judge America. I think God should judge America way more than He is, right? For a lot of reasons. But was that God's judgment? Those people in that tower, why did they bear the brunt of God's judgment on America? Were they some kind of sacrificial lamb that atoned America? I don't think so. Or was it just evil people with evil intentions doing hateful things and a lot of innocent people were victims? Of course, this leaves all kinds of questions about suffering. About, yeah, sure, God's good to, incredibly kind and good to those who deserve the worst, but but why does God still allow suffering to the good? Why does God allow you and I to, to encounter hardship? Well, um, we don't have a lot of answers for that, and the book of Job doesn't deal with it a lot. But Elihu gives one word of encouragement, and we'll close with this. And that is that uh, he tells Job, look, God is speaking. God's not ignoring you. God's speaking. God speaks through dreams. He speaks through prophets. And he speaks, interestingly, Elihu says, God speaks through suffering. Right? And, and I think this is true. Does God cause all the suffering? Does he cause all the hardship? I don't know how all that works out. But I do know this. God can use suffering in incredibly powerful ways for our good. Right? In fact, I find that some of the best things in my life have come as a result of some of the hardest times, right? When, when, when I'm prosperous and successful and life is easy, uh, 
I just don't pray as much as when life is hard, right? Um, One of the greatest turning points in my whole life uh, came many years ago uh, when God was calling me to be a pastor. And I did not want to be a pastor. And I told God repeatedly, I'm not going to be a pastor. And uh, you know what God did? God did not bless me. God did not bring prosperity and success and wealth and happiness uh, so that I could continue in a path that wasn't his plan for me. No, God made me lose my job. He made me uh, go through some terribly hard times, right? Uh, why? Because he, he had something better for me than the path I was on, right? Uh, God uh, may not be the cause of every suffering, but he certainly will use suffering in your life to a good purpose, right? To do good things in your life uh, if you will trust him and seek him and let him work. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.